If you've got a Bible, why don't you crack it open this morning? We're going to go to John chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read some verses out of here. We're going to be looking at Jesus cleansing the temple. So John chapter 2, if you've got a Bible, and if you don't, there should be one in the pew that's right in front of you you can use. And I'm going to be starting in verse, I'm going to be starting in verse 12 and reading up until verse 21. So follow along with me as we read this. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out, all of the money changers, all the sheep, all of the oxen, he poured over the coins, and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this sanctuary, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. Bow with me real quick as we dive into this. Jesus, thank you always again for your word. Thank you that we can come here week after week after week. And as always, Lord, my prayer is that my mouth would be stopped and that we would hear only what it is that you have to share, what it is that you have to speak from your written word here. Pray by the power of your spirit that you might convert and convict and to comfort the hearts that are in this room and that are outside of this room that are tuning in, Lord. Your word is powerful. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all people. So, Lord, be with us. Guide us and direct us. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as I'm, you know what's amazing is that it was, tomorrow will be one year. I preached this same text exactly one year ago tomorrow. And as I was looking at this text again, I hadn't preached it on a Sunday morning, so I I figured it was fair game. And as I was going over this text again, it's just unreal that it's not even, it's not even the same sermon almost, because God's word is just so deep, it's so rich, it's so alive, it's so active that you can hit the same verses and see and, and realize and learn and grow so much. And my conviction, as, I've, as I'm getting into the rhythm of being a pastor, as I'm getting into the rhythm of teaching from the Bible every single week, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot, I'm growing. I'm learning a lot about myself, I'm learning a lot about how to teach and what to teach and engaging with people. This is all very new to me. But where I land again and again and again is that I want people's hearts to be changed by the person Jesus Christ. I want people to love Jesus and I want people to know that Jesus loves you. And even in stories like this where it seems like everything is surface level, everything is in the physical, everything seems pretty normal, we may not understand completely what's going on because this is a different time and place and culture, but even here the depths of Jesus' love are evident. You just have to pause and read slowly or maybe read it again and again. And as I have been studying the Gospel of John, the Bible in general, with the intention of teaching it, one of the first things that I did is that I started looking at maps. 
Because growing up, I would read through the Gospels, I'd read through the Bible, and I would, and I would, I would read about Jesus and his, and his disciples going from one place to the other to this place. And I, I had no idea what Jericho or Jerusalem or Samaria or, or Galilee, Tyre, Sidon, I didn't know what any of these places were. I couldn't point them out to you on a map. And so there was this, there was this foreign, there was this disconnect. Different time, different place, different culture. And it was... It was kind of cool, as I started studying maps, and this seems kind of silly, but everything that I'm trying to do is pointing to know who Jesus is and to fall in love with him. I started looking at maps, and it just sort of helped me get a grip on his world. Because he he's God in the flesh. He actually walked the earth. He walked on planet earth in a real time, in a real place. He, he stepped on dirt. He had a neighborhood. He had a town. He went from one place to the other. And I wanted to get a glimpse into that world. And I'm never going to go to Palestine or Jerusalem because I will not get on a plane ever. So I'm kind of left for that. But I started studying maps and I was really blessed and surprised at how even something as simple as looking at where Jesus was on a map, it just, it helped me feel like Man, he really was here, and this is where he was. And I have a map. I, 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 print, I, had, this, I had this put up because this is, where, this is where Jesus was born. This is where he was raised. This is where he lived. This is where he ministered. And our, our, our friend, the Apostle John, has a really great talent for saying a lot in very few words, which means that even in the kingdom, him, him and me may not be friends. He says a lot with a very, very little bit of words. And he says here in chapter, in verse 12, and I mean, verses 13 through 21, you could, you could preach three sermons on that alone without even trying. But I'm gonna add verse 12 in there just for this one simple thing. John says that after this, Jesus went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. So this is right after Jesus' first miracle where he turned water into wine in Cana. And then it says that he went over to Capernaum. And Capernaum is right, right there at the top of the Sea of Galilee. That little weird, kind of looks like, a, like a, a bean or something. Capernaum is right there. And it says that he went from Capernaum, verse 13, he went, he went down into Jerusalem. Or he went up to Jerusalem. That's a 90-mile walk. It's 90 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem. And that stopped me in my tracks. Jesus was an ultra-marathoner. When was the last time any one of us walked 90 miles anywhere? Sam, I don't want to hear it. Ultramarathoners. Thad, I don't want to hear it. The rest of us, normal people, that's an incredible distance. And Jesus did this all the time. And there's just something about that. I was like, man, it, you, don't, you don't necessarily get that when you're just reading this and you've never looked at a map. You don't know what you're talking about. It's like, oh, well, he was in Cana and then he went to Jerusalem. Great. He went to Capernaum and then he went to Jerusalem. Like that was a 90-mile walk. That's just incredible to me. It's incredible to think of our Lord, the God of the universe, coming down into a human body, and he's walking 90 miles in the dust. It's just unreal. There's something about that that I love. So anyways, he comes down from Capernaum into Jerusalem, and he gets there, and he's not happy with what, with what he finds there. It says in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers were seated at their table. So what's going on with that? 
There's animals, there's birds, there's people selling, there's business transaction going on in the church. And what's going on here is that the Passover was a feast. It was one of three feasts that were required, there was a requirement to go according to Deuteronomy 16. You had to go down into Jerusalem for these three separate festivals and the Passover was one of them. And people would come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and they would sacrifice animals. And so there's some, there's, there's, kind of this, this pragmatic thing that's going on here. If you're walking 90 miles or more, people came from all over the land to come into Jerusalem to make these sacrifices, but the sacrifice of these animals, it couldn't just be any, any run-of-the-mill animal. These, these animals had to fit very specific criteria. They had to be without blemish. There was an age limit and all this stuff. And so if you come that far, 90 miles or more into Jerusalem to give your animal over for sacrifice, the people that are judging your animal, the people that are doing a little checklist, are the ones that are selling animals. And so the likelihood that you're going to get 90, 100 miles into Jerusalem and then you're going to have someone meet you at the door and say, sorry, this, this lamb doesn't meet the qualifications for sacrifice, you're going to have to buy one of ours. Lucky for you, we have some for sale. And so this is what was going on. It was sort of under the guise of convenience. Let's make it easier for people to get into Jerusalem, to get into the temple, and to make their sacrifices. Think about it. You don't have to carry your animal all the way. You could just show up and buy one of ours. But the thing is, is that, of course, they were not selling these animals at a discount. They were selling them at a premium. And you can see how easily this turns away from worship, away from reverence, away from what the house of God is all about, and it just turns into a cutthroat business. They sold these animals at a premium. One of the commentators that I was reading put it into today's currency and said that a, a pair of doves that would be the equivalent of, a, for, they'd be worth the equivalent of a nickel. You could get two doves for a nickel. They were sold at Temple for the equivalent of $4. And four bucks, you think four bucks isn't much, but for something that costs a nickel. My dad, back in the 90s, or earlier than that, he quit smoking whenever cigarettes went up to a dollar because they, they were a nickel. It's like, I'm not, I'm not paying that. I'm not doing it. $4 for a couple of birds. These people were price gouging. And then, of course, they're not just turning this area of worship into an area of cutthroat business, but you can imagine, if you think of the temple, the, the temple had four courts that were, that were designated for different people. And the, the first court was the court of the Gentiles, and all of the people from all nations were allowed into that first court. And that is where this took place. So the Gentiles come into their place of worship, the one area of the temple where they're allowed to be, and it's a market, it's a barnyard. There are people there with tables lined up with animals and birds and, and currency exchange, because of course you show up from 90 miles, 100 miles away, you don't have the currency that, the, that is required and accepted in the temple, and so you've got to exchange your money. And that was, that was jacked up 12%. They would charge you a fee to take your USD and turn it into euros, you know what I mean? And so these people were just getting tipped upside down and their pockets emptied out just to go to the temple to worship. And then their area of worship was now a barnyard. Thousands of animals lined up for sale for the thousands of people that were there. Josephus, the ancient historian, tells us that at, at, during the Passover, at any given time, there is between 15 and 20,000 people coming in and out and around the temple. So if you've got 15 to 20,000 people, imagine the animals that you have. Imagine the smell, imagine the sound. The Gentile court of worship was completely desecrated, completely disrespected. And Jesus comes 90 miles into Jerusalem and he sees this. 
And up until this point, this is the first real public appearance of Jesus in John's gospel. He did change water into wine at the wedding in Cana, but that was at a private wedding. Up until this point, he's been an obscure carpenter from Nazareth, and he shows up to the temple. Nobody knows who he is, and he lets them know that he's in town. He has seen this year after year after year, and this time he does something about it, and he has every reason to be mad. The, the word to Father Abraham was that the, the people of Israel will be a blessing to all other nations. And here at this moment in the Gentile court, the people of Israel were not being a blessing, they were being a burden. And Jesus walks into just a multi-ethnic scene and he sees people getting ripped off and taken advantage of and he loses his cool. Especially because this is under the guise of worship. This is under the guise of we're helping you worship. We're facilitating your worship time as long as you pay for it with the right currency. Never mind the feces on the ground. Sorry about that. Jesus is rightfully upset. And I want to be very clear about this because people get nervous around this text because Jesus is mad. And if that makes you uncomfortable may I humbly, Jesus is mad, okay? There's, there's no getting around it. This, this is righteous indignation, and that encourages me. For one, because that means that we have a God who doesn't like it whenever people are mistreated. He doesn't like it whenever people are taken advantage of, when people are manipulated, when people are boxed into a corner. We serve a God, the God of the universe. I was Two weeks ago, I was talking about the 621 quadrillion miles of Milky Way that God holds in his hands. That God is a God who believes in justice. What is the God like who holds the universe up by the word of his power? He is a God of love. He is a God of justice. He is a God who defends the widow and the orphan, the poor, the minority. He is a God who builds those people up and goes, he, he has their back. He defends them. He goes to bat for them. And we see that here. Jesus gets mad. He walks into the house of God and he sees people being ripped off. And the Lord hates unjust balance. He, he hates unjust weights and unequal balance. Proverbs 11.1. 1. Unjust scales are an abomination, it says. And so he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away and stop making my house, my father's house, a place of business. Now if you stop and you look at this, because this is why people get nervous because they think Jesus, they don't like the idea of Jesus losing his cool. They say things like, well, he lost control. He snapped. He blew a circuit, and he and he. Some I've even heard some people refer to Jesus here as throwing a temper tantrum, which is really not what you should be saying. What I love about this, and what I what I what I meant when I said that this story shows the depth of Jesus's love, you just have to pause and take notice of a few details that are right here, but they're easy to miss. Jesus is rightfully mad. This is perfect, righteous, holy indignation. But it is indignation. He is upset. He's very upset. But he's not out of control. Nothing's lost. Nothing's broken. Nothing's demolished. Everything here is recoverable. He picks up a scourge. 
It's basically a whip. He picks up a scourge of cords. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bold enough to stand here and tell you that I do not believe Jesus was whipping people. It does say that he chased them all out with the animals. But it says that he drove out the oxen and the sheep. How are you going to get an oxen to move? This, so we have to stop. This is why I brought up the 90 miles wide. We have to stop and imagine, like, what, what was this scene? Because if we stop and we actually imagine what this was like and we try to place ourselves there in our imagination, there's a few things that are blatantly obvious. Jesus is upset, but he's not out of control. Everything is recoverable. He chases out the oxen. He chases out the sheep. Those are easily recovered. I am a silly Southeast skateboarder, but for a time, I did work on a farm. And because I'm a silly Southeast skateboarder from the city, I left the gate of the sheep pen open one time and like 15 or 20 sheep got out. And so on an eight acre farm, and so me and one other person ran around this eight acre farm chasing these sheep. And there was a couple of them that I actually, I laid hands on them. I grabbed them by their wool and I walked them into the stable. If I can do it, these guys can do it. These are recoverable animals. And the reason why I bring that up is because this is a really interesting detail that John puts in here. He, he, he chases out the sheep. He chases out the oxen. The people run away. But he said to those who were selling the doves, take these things away. He doesn't open up the bird cages. Because the bird ca- if you open up a bird cage, you're not getting that bird back. You may, lose, you may be able to get your ox back and get your sheep back. But if the bird flies away, that's it. And it's subtle, but I think it's a detail that just, it, it reveals to us that, yes, Jesus is mad, but he is still in control. This is a righteous anger. He's disrupting the business. The coins that fell on the ground, you can be sure that those people picked those coins back up. Everything was restored. Everything that Jesus disrupted, these people were, ever, were able to get back. He didn't, he didn't rob from them. He didn't kill any of the animals. He didn't let the birds fly away into the air and be gone forever. This is righteous anger. It's controlled. It's perfect. It's beautiful. But he's angry. And so he turns over the tables. Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69, verse 9. We see the righteous anger of God and I'm so encouraged by it and I'm and I'm I'm also burdened because this was a this was a set of verses this is a story that growing up in church was often avoided I didn't hear much about this people didn't talk about this and I think it's because there's this reticence I think that there's this fear that well we don't know how to deal with this Jesus the baby who was born meek and mild lying in a manger a smoldering wick he would not put out that's all true he is compassionate he is loving He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But he has to call this out. And I love that we serve a God who is willing to go to bat for the people who can't speak for themselves. This is an encouraging word. And even then in that moment, he doesn't overdo it. He doesn't overdo it. But the zeal, he's being eaten up by this zeal. This passion is consuming him. Zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary in three days. 
I will raise it up. And so here come, Aaron, here come the authorities. And you've got you've to give them their due for a minute. Jesus comes in. Nobody knows who he is. And he turns over the tables. He lets out all the animals. And, I, and actually, before I get to them, I, would, I, I didn't know if I was going to say this or not. But on the fly, I am going to bring this up. As I started studying the book of John more and more, um, I came across this, this group of people that uh, pull more out of this, more out of this, uh, this event than, than, I had, than I had initially realized. If you open up any commentary on the book of John, any introduction to the book of John, and you read through the stuff like when it was written, where it was written, who wrote it, why did he write it, all this stuff, one of the things that you'll see in those pages is is commentators point out that within the book of John, there's seven miracles that the, that the story, the narrative sort of revolves around. There's these mile markers of miracles that Jesus does, and they, the count is seven. They say that there's seven of these miracles. There's the turning of water into wine. There's a, there's a number of healings that take place in chapter, in chapter five and in chapter nine. And then, of course, there's the, there's the climactic miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And so there's seven of them in total that, that the commentators point out. And then there's a small minority of people who I'm going to cast my lot in with who say that there's not, there's not seven. They don't believe that there's seven miracles in the book of John. They believe that there's eight. And that this is one of those miracles. That this was a miraculous event. And I'll be, you know, I'll be honest, whenever I first read that, I was really skeptical. And I was like, there's, there's nothing here that's miraculous. If... Like in John chapter 18, if Jesus had said something to the buyers and the sellers and they all fell over on their backside, or if the scourge had just come out of midair or something like that. But all of this is very normal. All of this is very physical. And so I just wasn't, I wasn't buying the eighth miracle thing. But as I looked more and more into it, and I, and I thought, okay, so remember, walking 90 miles in the dust, in the dirt, there's 15 or 20,000 people there's animals, there's money, there's business, there's good business, money hand over fist business. And I started adding all this up, I started thinking, there, there's something going on here that is just beneath the surface. Because the question is, how did Jesus get away with this? Whenever you consider where he is and what's going on, you have to pause and really be honest with yourself and say, how did he get away with this? I mean, think about it. This is this is business. Jesus is interrupting business. He says, do not turn my father's house into a place of business, which means that there is a bunch of people there who are incentivized monetarily to stop Jesus in his tracks from what he was doing. 15 or 20,000 people in and around the temple at any given moment, just there in the, in the, in the court of the Gentiles. And Josephus points out that during during normal, regular season, that there was about 300 temple guard that were posted up in the temple to make sure that things stayed peaceful. But during the Passover, because so many tens of thousands of people descended onto Jerusalem, the number of temple guards went way up. So you've got people who are incentivized to, to keep their business. You have temple guards who are there being hired to make sure something like this does not happen. And then on top of that, on the eastern wall was a fort called the Fort Antonia that was built by Herod. And there was, there was Roman soldiers in that fort that could look down into the temple to make sure that things stayed peaceful. So there was a lot of eyes looking out for something like this. And if we're thinking of Jesus as just a man, it would have been very easy to stop him. 
He's turning over tables. He's chasing animals. I mean, this would have taken a little bit of time. Somebody, a couple of somebodies, two or three guys, it wouldn't have taken much to just grab Jesus by the arms, pick him up off the ground, and walk him out. There was Roman soldiers that were looking out. There was the, there was the temple guard. How did he get away with this? How did he come in and disrupt people's business and nobody stopped him? They come and they talk to him, but nobody stops him. I think that there's something underneath the surface here. I think there's a little bit of the miraculous that's at play. I think, if I, if I may, I posit this, that people saw God in his righteous anger and they obeyed him. Jesus was not viewed as just some lunatic who came in and scatterbrained and made a mess. People saw Almighty God in human flesh righteously angry with them and they scattered. They obeyed what he said. And I love that. There's a story in Luke chapter four that kind of reminds me of this where Jesus goes back to Nazareth where he's from and he's preaching and the people there, because he's from there, the people there are like, we know this kid, we know his parents. Why is, why is he saying the things that, that he's saying? And they become so enraged with him that it says they drove him out of the city and led him to a cliff to throw him off. But he, he moved away from their midst and he escaped from them somehow. It, we're, not, we're not told how. But there's two things there that, make me, that remind me of this story. One, they drove him out. He let them drive him out. Little tiny Nazareth. If those guys were able to get Jesus out of town to throw him off of a cliff, why not here? So many more people. People with swords, people with spears. Jesus had a whip. People weren't afraid of his weaponry. They were afraid of what they saw in his eyes. And in Luke 4, Jesus somehow just escapes from their midst. How does he do that? He's God in the flesh. And something happens here that I think is worth pausing and, 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 and really marinating on for a while. People obeyed him. Imagine, have you ever been in a crowd of 15 or 20,000 people? Can you imagine doing anything that would make those 20,000 people, or even just a group, just a group of the, of the hundreds that were around him actually run away from him and obey what he's saying whenever there's money to be made? It's just mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling to consider all of these things about who Jesus is, the depth of who he is. This is, remember, this is, it says in Hebrews 1 that he holds up the universe by the word of his power, and here he is, and people obey him. And I always missed that. And they obey him not because of his weaponry, not because he was a lunatic. They obey him because he's God in the flesh, and they may not have even been able to understand why they obeyed him, Later in the book of John, there's men that are sent to arrest Jesus. And as they're approaching him, they hear him speaking. They hear him teaching, and they stop. And they go back to the authorities, and the authorities ask him, why did you not bring him? And these hard-boiled, authorized, deputized, weapon-carrying men said to their bosses, we didn't bring him because nobody spoke like this man spoke. Jesus is fascinating. Jesus is beautiful. He's angry, but he's in control. And he has authority, and people obey what he says. The people in Nazareth were allowed to drive him out of the city, and here, where it would have been much more easy to do so, much more people, much more muscle, they run away. They obey him. I love that. I love that. And so these people come up to him, and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And you know, whenever people come to Jesus with those sorts of demands, he never, he, he never, he never acquiesces to that. When people come up with this, show me 
evidence. Prove to me who you are. Satisfy my intellect, satisfy my curiosity. That's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to wow. He didn't come to mystify. He didn't come to entertain or to dazzle you with his miraculous powers. His miraculous powers were, were made to signify who he is. And who he is is God to whom you need to repent. And whenever it was, whenever it was effective in his wisdom to, to perform a miracle, he did. But for someone to just come up to him and arrogantly demand of him, he never honors that demand because he knows that it's not, that's not really what those people need. And we know this from scripture that, that miracles in and of themselves don't necessarily lead to repentance, which is, what, which, is, which is what Jesus is after. He comes out of the wilderness and he says, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what he's going for. He wants you to be in his kingdom and you need to repent to get in there, to be his child. He's not here to just wow you. In Matthew 28, man, if this wasn't in my Bible, I don't even know if I would believe it, but it's in the Bible, and so I do. Matthew 28, Jesus raises from the dead. He's been in the tomb, and he raises from the dead. And it says that the Roman guards who were keeping watch over his tomb saw an angel of the Lord come down. His appearance was like lightning, and he moved the stone. And these Roman guards were so dazzled and so entertained that they passed out. It says they fell on the ground like dead men. They were overcome, and they... They fainted. And so they got up and they said, I repent and I believe the gospel. No, I can't believe this. These guys, they actually saw an angel of the Lord move the stone. It doesn't say whether or not they saw Jesus come out, but they saw the angel move the stone and they went and they told the religious authorities and the religious authorities said, okay, I mean, maybe this is real, but here's some money. Tell your bosses that you fell asleep and that his disciples came and took his body by night. Which, if you're a Roman soldier sleeping on the job, that could be a death sentence. And instead of just admitting, we saw an angel. The stone moved. We fainted. Maybe we should believe this. They took the money and they told that story. And it says in Matthew 28 that that story was told all the way up until the day that the Gospel of Matthew was written. If that miracle doesn't immediately produce repentance, then there needs to be more than just miracles, and Jesus knows that. Because he's looking for repentance. The story of Lazarus and the rich man, it goes something like this. It's a, it's a parable that Jesus told to his, to his listeners. He says, there's a rich man and there's Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor man. The rich man in the parable doesn't have a name. He's just identified as the rich man. And they both die, and the rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And part of the torment is that the rich man can see Lazarus in heaven, resting on the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man in hell cries out, and he says, please send Abraham to my brothers. I've got five brothers, and tell them about this place. Warn them so that they don't come here. And they will repent, is what, what the rich man says. He says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers, and they will repent. That's the key. That's the word. And Abraham says to the rich man, if they, if they have Moses and the prophets, if they have the Old Testament scriptures, let them hear them. For even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. And I, you know, you read that and you're like, I don't know. You know, if I saw someone rise from the dead, that might, like, I might repent, but not necessarily. 
The Holy Bible tells us that these guys witnessed that level of a miracle and their hearts remained hard. Jesus is not going to just acquiesce to this to entertain these guys. He's looking for their repentance. And he tells them so. He tells them the work that he's doing. He doesn't leave them high and dry. He doesn't leave them hanging. And this, again, is just the beauty of Jesus. This is the wisdom of Jesus. This is the control of Jesus. They say, show us, show us a sign. And Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll, show you, I'll show you a sign. I will destroy this sanctuary in three days. I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this sanctuary, and you will raise it up in three days? Question mark. But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. And I love this. He's mad. He's rightfully mad. But he doesn't lose control and he doesn't forget what he came for. He doesn't forget who he is. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that includes the very men who are angry with him right now. The very men who are questioning him. The very men who are coming against him. And this is, this is sort of, this is the beginning of the end for Jesus. This is, this is the kind of thing that gets Jesus in trouble because not only did he cleanse the temple and chase all, all the animals and turn over the money tables, but he used, he used this, this phrase. He said, do not make my father's house a place of business. And the Jews knew what he meant. They knew what he was saying. Later in chapter five, he says something very similar after, after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda gave him the use of his legs and told him to take up his mat and walk. And you know the story. That happened on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders get mad at Jesus because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, my father is working until now and I am also working. And the, Jews, the Jewish leaders there knew what that meant. Because it, it says in verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, that now they were seeking to kill him all the more because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They know what Jesus is saying here is do not make my house a place of business. Jesus is claiming that that is his. And it's the beginning of the temple being obsolete because Jesus himself is the temple. He is the presence of God amongst us. And so these guys say, you need to show us a sign to prove this. Who do you think you are? The sign that I'm going to give you is to destroy this sanctuary. In three days, I will raise it up. And they say, it's taken 46 years. So just a note, just a quick note on 46 years. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And then it was rebuilt and finished in 519 B.C., right about there. And then in 16 B.C., about 500 years later, King Herod decided to give the temple a facelift. It needed, a, it needed some renovations. And so from 16 B.C. to about 30 B.C., where we are in this story, it's a period of 46 years that the temple has been worked on, but it's been around a lot longer than 46 years. And they say 46 years, really. 46 years, you're gonna, you're gonna, re, you're gonna rebuild this in three days, huh? And this, this followed Jesus all the way to the cross. This went viral. This statement followed him all of the time that he was in his ministry on earth. There was people on, when he was on the cross dying, there was people who jeered at him and said, you who said you were gonna rebuild the temple in three days, take yourself off the cross. This offended people. But Jesus was not talking about a physical building. He was talking about his body. He was going to die. He was going to give his body over to be killed for the forgiveness of sins. He was going to take the punishment that we deserve for these people right here that were giving him grief. He's angry, but he's controlled. And he hasn't forgotten who he is. He hasn't lost his mind. He hasn't blown a fuse. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's at. He knows what he came to do. And even these men right here, 
who over the, over the progression of the entire Gospel of John, we see these religious leaders time and time again come after Jesus with their words and with their manipulation and they try to, track, they try to trap him, they try to trick him, they're always after him. Sometimes they even pick up stones to kill him and each time he brings it back to his body. Because the very people that want Jesus to be killed and eventually will succeed in doing so are the very people who are able to get saved because of his death. And Jesus knows that. Never mind the physical temple. I'm talking about my body. He was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. He came to seek and to save. And one of the, one of the points that I think, as I was praying over this passage this week, one of the things that I just, I kept feeling burdened by is I want to land on this Jesus they didn't understand what Jesus was saying right they didn't get it and this happens all over the gospel in chapter 4 he, he's, he's with the woman at the well and as soon as she takes off it's a 20 mile walk from where he was in Judea up to Samaria so he's tired and he's sweaty and he meets this woman at the well and he's thirsty and he asks her for a drink and as soon as she leaves his disciples show up and they say master you need to eat something and he says I have food that you don't know about and they start discussing among themselves did somebody feed him where did he get food and he said the food that I have is to do my father's will and to accomplish his work they're thinking physical he's speaking spiritual here they're thinking physical he's speaking spiritual this happens all over in the Gospels. And the reason why I labor this point is because as I was praying over this this weekend, or over this week, I know what it's like to think that God got it wrong. And I think that there's people here that need to understand that God loves them. And we can't wrap our minds around what he's doing. And the devil comes in there and plants a seed of doubt. He did it to Jesus. As soon as Jesus is baptized in Mark chapter 1 and, the, and the, the heavens break open and Father God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus went straight into the wilderness and the devil was there waiting for him saying, are you really? I mean, if you were really. If God was really looking out for you, if Yahweh really had your best in mind, if he really was kind, if he really was compassionate, hey, eat. You shouldn't be hungry. You shouldn't be alone. You shouldn't be tired. Hey, you know what? I'll give you all the nations. Never mind, Yahweh. I'll give you all the nations. Bow before me. We, we can think that God's got it wrong. Jesus says something and we, don't, and we don't get it. And my fear is that when that happens, we go, okay, well, then I'm, then I'm out. I've been on the phone multiple times this week with a, with, a, with a young guy who is just burdened because he feels like his life has gone a direction that he didn't intend Things have happened that he didn't like, and he's, he's home alone, and he's crying out to the ceiling fan, God, wh why? Where are you? What's wrong with you? I'm done with you. And friends, that's my, that's my fear, is that I can never, this man's suffering, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and so he, his conclusion is, well, if I'm suffering, then God is bad. If I'm suffering, then God's at least not paying attention. And friends, I implore you, as a pastor, the only thing that I have to give is to is to implore you to look at the scriptures, to, to study the word of God, to get into community, to stay in church, and to know that God loves you. God loves you. These guys are tripping about a physical structure, and he's ready to give over his very body for them. The very men who are seeking to kill him are the very men that are able to be saved by his death and resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to these people. He says, 
this Jesus, by the, by, the, by, the, by the plan of God, the foreknowledge of God, you put on a cross and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it. It was sovereign, it was planned, but you're the ones that drove the nails into his hands. You're the ones that cried out, let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. And 3,000 of those people were saved that very day. God's grace goes out to everybody, even the people like this that are giving him grief in the very beginning. Because he's that good. And in the moment, these guys didn't get it. In the moment, these guys didn't see it. But friends, please do not conclude that because we don't understand something that, that we should just throw our Bibles away and leave the church and go find something else to do. Please don't do that. The biggest setback of my life has been that I have thought about God wrongly. God is kind. He is good. He is compassionate. And when things happen that we don't understand, I, I can't tell you why that, that happened. The guy that I've been talking to all week on the phone, I can't tell him why things are happening to him the way that they're happening or why things aren't happening the way that he wished that they would happen. But what I do know, and what I can prove from the scriptures, is that it's not because Jesus lost his cool. It's not because he's lost control. He's wise, and he's good, and he's patient, and he is kind, and he is doing something. He's not abandoned you. He's not just standing back, biting his fingernails, laughing at your peril. These guys were worried about a sanctuary, and Jesus was ready to give over his very body. The same thing happened in chapter 6. People left him because they didn't understand what he was talking about with the bread. You guys want physical bread? Well, I am eternal bread. And they were like, this is weird. And they left. It says the many left him. They left because they didn't understand what he was saying about physical bread and blood when he was ready to shed his blood and give over his physical body for their salvation, to take the punishment of sin that we deserve so that they could have his righteousness. And they didn't get it. If you're here this morning and you think that God's got it wrong, may I humbly suggest, no, friend, you're wrong. God is good and he loves you. And thank God that he is patient. Thank God, thank God that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. For years and years, I rebelled against God because I did not understand how kind he is. He's so kind. Read this story. Go home and read it again. And then read it again. Look at his love. Look at his composure. He's mad because the business is taking people's eyes off of God. They're, they're greedy for unjust gain and he's imploring them, listen, I'm gonna give my body over. You want a sign? I'm gonna take the payment and the punishment for your sins. There's a sign. And then I'm gonna raise from the dead, proving that I am who I say I am. Raised up for your justification so that you have access to the Father in heaven for all of eternity. Never mind the temple. Friends, never mind the temple. These things were tossed, but they were not lost. Jesus knew what he was doing every step of the way. He's good. He loves you. He really loves you. If you're sick, if you're addicted, if you're angry, if you're hurt, if you've had a bad family life, if you don't know what to do with your kids, if COVID has completely ransacked your, your life, God loves you. God loves you. I don't know why things break down the way that they do. We live in a sinful world. Do not turn away from the Lord because you let those things win. The Lord is working all things out for your good. And if it doesn't manifest here in this life in a powerful way, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a way to glory beyond all comparison. 
And I, and I want to make this, as I close up, I want to make this clear. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not up here speaking from a platform disconnected and not knowing what's, what I'm talking about just because I, I read some commentaries by a dead guy and, and, I, and I read the Bible and I'm just making this up. Most of you know I lost my dad to cancer in August to a, to a cancer that the doctors said would not take him. And so that was a really, that was an emotional roller coaster because we found out that he had cancer and it, you know, it was like, oh no, no. It was like, but it's not gonna kill him. It's like, whoa, <laughs> great, praise God. And then he died. I don't know what to make of that. Less than a month before my dad died, one of my closest friends died at 37 years old, leaving behind two little girls. I lost one of my best friends and I lost my dad in less than a month. And the only reason that I'm not angry, the, no, the only reason that I'm not at the bar working out my emotions on the karaoke machine is because I believe what's written in this book and I believe that we have a God who is paying attention to us. 621 quadrillion miles of galaxy are in his hand. That's how big his love is for you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He has not abandoned you. Do not let the devil tell you otherwise. His goodness is so sweet. It's too good. My dad is with the Lord. My friend Ben is with the Lord. If they even care, they're looking down at us right now, thinking like, y'all gotta get up here. It's sweet, it's sweet. There's no taxes. <laughs> There's no COVID. There's no crying, there's no weeping, there's no pain, there's no tears, these things have passed away. That is the kingdom that it's the Father's good pleasure to invite us into. And even in a moment when everything is against him, he still has his face set to the cross and he's thinking about his body being given over for their good, for our good. He's that good. Amen? Amen. Before, before, I, before I step down, um, tonight at the evening service, there's, uh, I, I'm teaching out of John chapter 13. And friends, if you want, if you want a, a, a set of verses, it's when Jesus is, is cleansing the disciples' feet. Friends, come tonight. John chapter 13. Come here at 6 o'clock. I, I, as I was studying for this, for this chapter 13 sermon, I, I got choked up just thinking about how good Jesus is. And, and because Jesus is good, it means that we're, we're okay. The God who holds the universe together is a God of benevolence and kindness. And let us, let us come before him for these last couple of songs and worship him. And come, come tonight if you can. We've got people that can watch your kids that have done the background check and the whole thing. Just come, have some coffee and come before the Lord and listen to the word preached, yeah? Bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for not quitting. Thank you for seeing it through, seeing the, your love in the cross through all the way to the end. Thank you for giving up so much for us. Lord, help us to not give up. Help us to not be so overwhelmed by all of the turmoil that's in the world and be beaten by it. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are hurting. I pray that you would touch their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would put on their heart to come, to come up and pray with me or any of the staff pray with each other Lord that hearts would be changed that people would really know that you love them that they would really know that they are cosmically eternally loved and that repentance 
and that conversion would take place by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this house. Thank you for all of the hands that make it possible. We love you, Lord. Help us to understand your love so that we might love you even more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.